Can Bitcoin survive without China? This week on Download This Show, the cryptocurrency comes up against the might of Beijing, which has banned banks and payment firms from engaging in the cryptocurrency. So what does that mean for the future? Also, getting a slice of Apple, the court case that could reshape the Apple App Store. Plus, is that a mole? Google's new skin check app, and it was the gateway to the internet for millions. But as Microsoft Internet Explorer takes its final bow, is there anything about it that you'll actually miss? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Welcome to Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And Jen Dudley Nicholson, National Tech Editor for News Corp. Welcome back. Greetings and thank you. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you here too. Um, all right, let's start off with the Battle of the Tech Titans, which is literally what happens on the show every week. Uh, <laughs> Apple is at war with whom, Jed Dudley Nicholson? It is the battle of Goliath versus Goliath, and they're both pretending to be David. Um, this is um, <laughs> Apple, and this is um, Epic Games, which is the owner of Fortnite, which you may have heard of, a tiny little game that spells itself incorrectly. <laughs> All I know about it is it comes with a dance, but I take your point. So why are they fighting? So they're fighting over money, but they're <laughs> pretending to be fighting over us. Um, so Apple is fighting because it would like to continue having a walled garden where its apps are nice and safe and, and protect us. You know, the the average everyday person just using an iPhone trying to get by in this crazy world. Um, and Epic is fighting because it would really rather not pay Apple 30% of everything it takes from all of us. Um, and it's also just standing up for the little guy developer who just wants to uh, make it in this world by putting an app on apps, Apple store and and not having to pay that much out for it. All right, Sarah Moran, whose side are you on? Oh, look, I'm so enthusiastically on one side of the fence most of the time. But in this case, you've got Tim versus Tim. And with Epic, I completely understand. So basically in November, Tim Sweeney from Epic came out and started releasing Fortnite for a more affordable price or a cheaper price than what was available in the Google and the Apple app stores. And as a result, got booted off the app stores. And, you know, Tim Sweeney did not like this and has decided to play it out in the courts. Now, the thing is, I am a I am an iPhone user and I have come to understand Apple's philosophy on why it does, why they do charge 30% uh, of the takings for, for apps that are making money on the store. And the big reason is that they spend a lot on labour checking apps before they go live. So Apple sees you as an Apple customer. They don't see the customers of the apps on their store as Fortnite customers or Epic customers. They see them as Apple customers first and foremost. So they invest a lot in checking all the bugs and making sure that an app or a game is absolutely ready to roll and that the user experience for an iPhone user is going to be amazing. And they believe that costs around 30%. They also invest a lot in marketing and making sure that those users, um, you know, are found. So if you're making as much money as Epic is, then they think they deserve the cut. On the flip side, basically, it's if you own over a million dollars on the App Store, that's that remains at thirty percent. But if you earn less than a million dollars, your cut will only be fifteen percent. Now, if you think of the proliferation of terrible apps that exist on the App Store, (laughs) 
they never would have been able to afford to, you know, pay developers to be able to get them up to Apple's quality. And so Apple does that for you. And as a result, that's why they take it on the other end. So I don't know. I, I think I'm actually on Apple's side on this one. Took mm. me a while to convince myself just now, but that's where I am. I appreciate you taking us on the journey. It keeps me up at night. What can I say? All right. Jen, do you yes. care to pick a side? I'm on the sidelines. That's where I am because I love watching big tech companies go at each other. It kind of keeps us in business and gives us something to talk about. So let the rich people fight and let the lawyers win, I suppose. It is fascinating though. And like what you mentioned too about, um, you know, uh, small developers who are earning a million dollars or less than a million dollars rather a year from their apps. So they do have to pay 15%. And it was interesting because that wasn't always the case until this lawsuit came about. And so... Apple kind of hedged their bets and said, look, maybe they were considering issues of, you know, antitrust lawsuits when they brought that in. However, it was mainly in response to COVID. However, it got here. It got here after that lawsuit and it's very useful for a lot of smaller developers. And so I kind of like what that what has happened out of that. I don't necessarily want to blast the entire Apple ecosystem, however, because I like apps. What happens to the Apple ecosystem? particularly from a user's standpoint, if Apple loses, Jen? The world ends. <laughs> um, no, okay, it, it, might not, it, it might not end. Look, we've, we've had, um, you know, jailbroken phones for a long period of time where people kind of sneak apps onto an iPhone and it's a really laborious system in order to make this work and, and you know, potentially you're sideloading malware onto your phone, your shiny iPhone that used to be so good and then voiding the warranty. I mean, potentially Apple could have to allow something like that to happen. I don't think that that's going to do wonders for the the safety and security of of one of the safest brands. If it, it leads to lower prices that developers have to pay, then potentially that's a good thing. It's, it's really yet to be seen. However, I thought it was really interesting that they said, look, if we don't get this money through, you know, the 30% charge on, you know, in-app purchases, we will find it elsewhere. And so it's not necessarily a fight that Apple's just going to give up on and Tim Apple's going to stride off into the, into the distance going, fine, find your own apps. If Apple loses this one, it's it's really, I don't think it's just a matter of, you know, as Jen said, oh, we just throw our hands up in the air and walk away. Um, we may see that there might be a fee introduced for people to get their apps approved in the store. So Apple iPhone apps are not cheap to make and developers are not cheap to hire. So if you then have to add the cost of, you know, passing Apple's rules to get through, that's going to actually really result in us having a lot less apps available. You know, I work with young people and I encourage them to build their own apps and they can have a go at getting them in the app store and hopefully they get in. But if I have to turn around to a 12-year-old girl and say, you can't build your app unless you've got 50k to make sure Apple approves it, well, that's really going to have a negative effect on all of us as well as builders of the internet. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Jen W. Nicholson, National Technology Editor with News Corp and Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy. Mark Fennell is my name and the never-ending saga that is Bitcoin. Continue with this week with a huge crash thanks to China. Jen, what's happened? Oh, look, it's hard to tell with Bitcoin. Like, okay, the the volatile thing has become more volatile and it's had a proper crash this time, so everybody freak out. So it's a little bit Elon Musk and a little bit China. China has come out um, with your various financial agencies and said, don't trade in cryptocurrency, it's volatile. Telling everybody what they already know, essentially. 
but it's seen as a bit more of a warning that there's a crackdown because China hasn't actually been that fond of cryptocurrency because as I understand it, and I don't want to overspeak, but the government tends to like to know what its people are doing. And that includes not hiding large swathes of money, not avoiding tax, you know, those sorts of things where where actors maybe go missing for a few months and then come back and they're very conciliatory. And so in 2019, they said that no, cryptocurrency is a no-go. However, the fact that they're now coming out and saying, no, I really mean it, it really has sent shivers through a lot of big investors, which is the reason that we're seeing Bitcoin at bargain low basement prices. Sarah Moran, uh, what do you think this means long-term for not just Bitcoin, but I think the cryptocurrency market more generally? So I'm a recent convert. I am a cryptocurrency holder and I was a crypto millionaire and now I definitely am not. So that was a real journey. (laughs) That's that's quite a ride. Uh, You should see the memes. They're terrible. So basically, I think I am now looking at crypto as a serious technology and I look at it not from a currency perspective, but from the technology that blockchain is enabling. I don't think that's going to be going away. And so for me, when I have purchased different coins, I really look at it as being like an angel investor in the technology. So there's certain things that I want to see in the world, whether or not you see it as like mass crowdfunding or, you know, some, some other way of structurally creating this technology. That's why I've put my literal money where my where my thoughts are and and what I want to see in the world. So basically I'm I'm long-term thinking about what this change is happening. When uh, COVID happened, uh, we saw disruption in all sorts of markets all over the world and so I started buying more crypto mainly just because I needed something to look forward to. And and I don't think that I'm alone in that. Um, I think there's a lot of people I've heard it said that where with our money over generations, we've been taught to build ladders, but some people are looking for trampolines. And that's definitely was the case in March. And we've all fallen off the trampoline come May. So I I think that uh, these markets do have the potential to recover. And the reason what I'm looking at is when we talk about China having an impact, what we want to do is actually look at the overall movement of of the money. So are people still mining in China? Is there still activity happening there? And if not, where is it going? And where is the potential for that to grow over time? Is it wise to invest in a currency if the world's largest adult population in the form of China in the future will not necessarily be allowed to engage in it, Jen? You're asking me for wise financial decisions. This is interesting. I do journalist math. To be clear, non binding. <laughs> okay. You, you should not follow me into anything. However, China is not the whole world. And I don't think that they've actually stopped Bitcoin mining because 75% of the world's Bitcoin mining actually happens in China. So obviously there's a concern and that's why we've seen a lot of changes in this. But there's also the personality that is Elon Musk who came out and said, okay, no more spending Bitcoin on Teslas. And that actually started this whole business. And then, of course, China kind of cemented it and all of a sudden, um, yeah, low, low prices. I don't think that Bitcoin is just going to go away, however, because as we've seen over the past few months, it's actually gained a lot of legitimacy prior to this. Um, There are still concerns around mining it and in particular around the environmental impacts of mining it. And I think that there'll, there'll probably be a lot more work into making sure that that doesn't consume quite as many fossil fuels as it currently does. But there are a lot of uses for some of this cryptocurrency that is real and, and tangible and useful. I don't know if that means that Dogecoin is going to survive. 
That's maybe, the joke one that was started in Australia, but it's ultimately become really successful. Crazy successful and, and has, yeah, a multi-million dollar cap now. And it is a meme coin and I don't know if Shiba Inu is going to do any good because it has massively crashed over the past week. Uh, but there are coins out there that are actually useful. And, and you know, Bitcoin, you should definitely not buy pizzas with it, but I think it's going to stick around for the long term. And the fact that you can see it on nightly news forecasts and, and you know, people really talking about this as an investment and companies going big into it and Tesla not selling off their big stash of, of Bitcoin, I think it's going to stick around. Okay, but just to take that same point to, back to you, Sarah, right? So Beijing has banned banks and payment firms from providing services to crypto-related transactions, right? 75% to the point earlier of the Bitcoin mining is happening in China. Does it not feel like that's something of a recipe for a disaster? Like if, if China is actively against investing in it in the future, speaking from a governmental standpoint here, does that not concern you somewhat? No, I mean, but also I'm I'm not big on Bitcoin. Like I think that if you think of Bitcoin as being like the US dollar of crypto, yes, things, we kind of measure it by that because it's the thing everybody knows. Maybe we'll start measuring it in Dogecoin, I don't know. But I do have issues about the environmental impact of Bitcoin myself, so I don't invest in it. But what, if you think of it as being like the Ask Jeeves of the internet back in the day, um, like these early stage versions of technology, then I'm asking what's next. And so Ethereum, for example, is uh, better on the environment. Um, so, you know, we, you, you can look at where the money is actually flowing out off the back of that. Bitcoin does not run all the crypto markets. So, you know, I, I think we're at the start of a, of a new phase of technology and I'm, I'm here to see the booms, the busts and bust out the popcorn. Plus Ethereum kind of sounds like a great sci-fi movie, Jen. It does. Starring Matt Damon, I'm pretty sure. All right. No doubt we will be talking more about cryptocurrencies in the future. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And would you allow Google to check your skin formalities? Uh, that is something that is uh, on the table this week. Tell me why, Sarah Moran. So Google have uh, been using AI uh, to let you uh, take three photos of something you think is wrong with your skin. And we'll look at uh, whether or not, you know, what the possibilities may be as to what could be wrong. People have come out sort of against doing that. But I must say, I, I really like this idea. Um, I think there's, again, we're at the start of new technology and how we can use AI uh, to help, you know, either get us to the doctor or maybe prevent us from having to go because we know that we don't need to. And I think that's where the conversation is happening at the moment is the risks around what happens when we let uh, AI tell us a bit more about ourselves and our health. That is interesting. Um, how does it work, Jen? So basically it works using artificial intelligence. So Google is is training up these models essentially with a giant database of freckles and moles and, and skin lesions and ingrown hairs and goodness knows what. I lo I'd love to see it. It sounds really attractive. And basically... Hopefully, with um, artificial intelligence um, and this, the use of these databases, they can identify which is which, and then they will give you some information about what is potentially on your skin. However, I'm really fascinated to know if they're going to overdiagnose or underdiagnose, if, if they're going to sort of set the sensitivity to 10, because there's some real possible bad implications if they don't. I mean, I guess you'd have to assume that it's going to gear slightly more towards the risk averse, right? Because you don't want to get caught with like a lawsuit later down the track of like, you said this wasn't cancer and it was. Surely like they're going to lead more in the direction of being cautious. 
I would really hope so, because I, I have my own personal experience of this with a, an early sort of skin diagnosis app that came out. And I tested it and I, I pointed it at a few, you know, random freckles and it said, no, Jane, you're fine. And then I decided that I really didn't like one of those. And I went to a dermatologist and he said, no, Jane, you're fine. But look, we can take it out. We can biopsy it if it really concerns you. And they did just because um, I was quite insistent and it turned out to be melanoma. And so I'd actually gone back to the uh, CEO of that app and said, look, it didn't really work out for me. And he said, oh, well, look, maybe it's changed in, in that time period and, and maybe it wasn't our fault. But that particular app has now put in um, some dermatologist oversight. And so paid members can actually get sort of their, their skin lesions that, that look a bit dodgy can get them looked at by an actual doctor, which I think is important. So I'm a bit concerned about the ones that kind of skip through the system. It's worth pointing out, Sarah, that, and I didn't realise this until I saw the stories, that there, there is actually a global shortage of dermatologists at the moment. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because I use an app already called Molespot. It's invested in by Airtree because Airtree Ventures, uh, who are major investors in Australian companies, they put a call out saying, hey, we're experts at melanoma, unfortunately, here in Australia. Let's actually look at building out some of this technology. And I happened to go to my dermatologist and he said, do you want to use this app? I'm like, I think it's the same one that's been invested in. And that whole working in conjunction with my doctor to be able to document what on my skin and see the progress over time, it means that if I need to go to another dermatologist, you know, or if I, if I move or anything like that, I can actually take my data with me and I have tracked over time the progress of the moles on my skin. So I think if we look at the potential of these uh, conversations around using AI and that documentation of things on our body over time, I think there's a lot of great health potential and upside. But as Jen rightfully pointed out, it's, it's when you want things to be okay and you don't take things further, that's where the risk comes into play. Right. So how does it actually work, the, the one that you use? Uh, it's an app on my phone. And I think there's like a little attachment that gives it, you know, like quite a strong camera. And we did a full documentation over my body. So in the same way that when you go to get your mole check, but anything that was a spot, we took a photo of. And that photo is uploaded to a database and it goes through and it shows any other mark that might look similar to one that's on my body so that my doctor can then say, well, that's the one that's on Sarah's body. Look at this other one right here. You know, two actually were melanoma that looked similar. There was two that weren't. Okay. Yep. That's enough for me to flag, you know, on top of my own experience and expertise that I think we should, we should definitely look further into that. Wow. That's fascinating. And, and how does that square with your experience going to see a dermatologist, Jen? Yeah, they, um, apparently I, I don't have enough freckles and moles to actually get the whole mole scan. So that's not something that they'd mentioned. But I, I do like the idea of tracking moles over time because it's the changes that you're looking for. So that makes a particular sense. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily rely on artificial intelligence to diagnose you. And I think with a lot of these sort of diagnostic tools that use AI, because I've talked to a couple of companies um, that are using this behind the scenes as well, I like the idea that they're, they're flagging things for people, but they're not necessarily taking full responsibility. So if they can flag them with a doctor, as in Sarah's case, I think that's fantastic. If, you know, they're taking full responsibility for your hypochondria, then maybe not. <laughs> well, it is worth pointing out that there are certain numbers of doctors who are concerned that it'll lead to a tsunami of overdiagnosis. Do you think that's likely, Sarah? Oh, I hope so. Overdiagnosed to your heart's content. If it's going to save people's lives, well, you know, I'd rather be worried than, than not worried at all.
Yeah, we have a really high ratio of ultraviolet light to pale people in Australia and a really high rate of melanoma. And I think there's probably a lot that sort of goes unnoticed as well. So overdiagnosis is okay. I mean, if it's if this kind of app is going to bring more attention to, you know, people and their their skin, excellent. If we need to print out some more dermatologists, I say we go for it. Print out some more dermatologists. Is that how it works? I mean, I assume so. I'm not a doctor. Um, Jen, are there other examples where AI is helping us, uh, let's say, aid diagnosis of other issues? Yeah, definitely. So AI is best at sort of recognising when something is a little bit different and a little bit off. And so if you can run some of these databases through it of diagnostic imaging, for example, like, you know, all the the x-rays and the CAT scans and the fun things that you have done when you're in hospital, then potentially it can flag things that a radiologist can then look at. And so there's a a company in Australia called um, Annalise AI, I believe, and and they've got software that now finds 127 different things that they can they can point out um, to a radiologist to look for, and there's it also specialises in things like um, signs of lung cancer, signs of breast cancer, and also tuberculosis, all things which I'm not in favour of. No, I'm very much anti all those things. You know, there's obviously a, a quite a complex legal framework that sits around diagnosis and, and going to see a doctor. These services, like, what's their liability if they get something right or wrong? I know that it's basically sort of like it's it's pre-doctor visit, right? So it's saying, hey, you should go to a doctor, get this checked out. But but is there a legal framework that sits around this stuff, Jen? This one from Google, for example, has been given uh, approval in the EU only, I believe. Um, mm. And in a lot of these things, just as we've seen with um, the stuff on smartwatches, it's always provided as a guide. And so you'll always see this as, you know, this is not um, to be used as a diagnosis. This is provided as a guide. I hope people take that seriously and that they don't just diagnose themselves wholly through Google. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. R.I.P. Internet Explorer. It's leaving us, Sarah. It was my first. My first exploration of the internet was via Internet Explorer. At least I remember it that way. I don't actually know if that's true. Say, <laughs> <laughs> I might have been on the Netscape? internet before 95. <laughs> I feel like mine was Netscape. Mine I, was Netscape. Yeah, yeah. mine was yeah. Netscape. Yeah. But we're very old, Jen. Sarah, it's true. tell us of your... <laughs> Fond memories of Microsoft. I'll just hide my age by pretending it was my first. Yeah, look, uh, for me, you know, Internet Explorer was that default gateway to the internet after after Netscape, really. It did feel fancy and new and shiny and, you know, like someone had made the internet a pleasant place for us. Uh, and then slowly over time that, that has eroded and it was the way that we downloaded Chrome, you know? Um, <laughs> So I should give some context around this story. Of course, uh, it is the uh, the veteran web browser that uh, was released originally in Windows 95. And as of June 2022, it will no longer be appearing in the, in Windows phones. But it's been replaced by something called Windows Edge, which is a very, sounds like, a, you know what, it sounds like a bad gritty reboot of Internet Explorer, Jen. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to imagine what a gritty reboot of Internet Explorer would be like. Clippy goes bad. <laughs> um, no. um, Internet Explorer has felt old, like long before 95. 95, Windows 95, when it came out, was all like gloss and, and like Friends soundtrack and, and you know, Weezer playing in the background and, and Start Me Up and very exciting. But yeah. And then, yeah, Internet Explorer has become this just turgid waste of real estate on your screen that sits there with a big 
E that kind of plonks down and doesn't do anything except let the malware in. And so it's actually kind of nice to be saying goodbye to it. However, I've got to say Microsoft Edge, that I mean, it even looks quite similar to Internet Explorer. So I feel like we're not really saying goodbye. We're just saying hello to Clippy 2.0. I just realised that the studio computer here in the ABC actually has Microsoft Edge. <laughs> I'm just going to click on it and see if it feels in any way shows you how often I actually turn on the internet. It's the exact same logo. Somewhere. It's it's like it's <laughs> it, it it's still an E Edge Explorer. It's still an E. I oh, it I thought too. it died in 2015. Me too. Uh, Why are yeah. we talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm, I thought it was already dead, and so I felt this moment of like, oh, still kicking, hey? Uh, well, congrats, but. Uh, <laughs> Time to say goodbye. <laughs> Please leave now. Eight percent of people on the internet were still using it. What's wrong with those eight percent? I assume those are people who have also not updated. So these are the reasons why we have so much ransomware in the world. Yeah. Right. So um, normally, when a major piece of internet heritage passes into the ether, we uh, memorialise it with our fond memories. And I'm suddenly realising that Internet Explorer is so stunningly bland that we may not actually have any fond memories to memorialise. <laughs> I remember having to go to the help desk to try to get an update for it because it wouldn't work without an update. I remember when it wouldn't actually do anything or load anything correctly because it didn't like Java that particular month. I remember when it let a bunch of malware. Yeah, no, I've got nothing. <laughs> I remember feeling cool getting IE8 and convincing my friends that IE6 was no longer the way to use the internet as if that was, you know, something that would require convincing. But, yeah, no, good riddance to all of it. But in terms of the wider world of internet browsers, right, it is fair pointing out that Internet Explorer was, for many, many, many people, millions of people, the first way they logged onto the internet. But that entire universe has really changed. I'm obviously, when Google stepped into the market with Chrome and, and Firefox as well, it really sort of opened up the, the realm. What was it that things like Firefox and Chrome did that I guess sort of changed, I, I promised myself I'd never use this phrase, but here we go, changed the game, Jen, for browsers? I think I remember when Chrome came out and it was a really big deal because, I mean, it was named Chrome because um, the idea was that it didn't get in the way. And Internet Explorer was really well known at the time for a giant chunky border that came over the top, like a big like Word document, essentially, that would take up a lot of the website space. And, And back in the day, like our screens weren't that big to begin with. So when Chrome sort of arrived and, and yes, it hogged all of our RAM and made us upgrade our computers and still does, it had a, just this one bar at the top that you could plug all of your content queries into, into Google and it didn't get in the way. And so that was quite a revelation. I'm just trying to remember if Internet Explorer was ever cool because, <laughs> like, Chrome Check was your history, cool when see it came if there's out. Any, you know. <laughs> Chrome was cool when it came out. I mean, Internet Explorer got Microsoft in a lot of trouble. I mean, you say that it's it was kind of the first way into the internet for a lot of people, but that's the reason why it got into trouble because it was it was there by default, and so it was just the the easiest solution for a lot of people. And at least we you know when it came to Chrome, even though it was hogging resources, at least it was it was something that they'd gone out and they'd done for themselves. So was Internet Explorer part of Microsoft's antitrust issues? Massively, yes, and because it was installed by default um, and there was there was no option given. As a result of the lawsuits, I believe that they brought in something that said, you know, is this what you want to use as your default? And, of course, if you boot up any Windows device now, it just bugs you constantly. Are you sure? Do you want to use this as your default? You could use Edge, you know, you could be cool. 
that's the reason. Internet Explorer is the reason. So that's really interesting because like if you're using, if you open up a Google account on Microsoft Edge or Safari or anything, it already asks you, like any any sort of service like a Gmail, it asks you on the corner, do you want to use Chrome? Do you want to use Chrome? Do you want to use Chrome? And when you get an Apple computer, it launches with Safari. How are they regarded as any less anti-competitive? You're going to have to talk to my lawyers about that one. But um, the ACCC has brought this up, um, in particular in relation to Google Android phones, that they use Google Chrome by default. And so that's one of the things they're saying there should be a choice. And so the, the same sorts of things are, are reoccurring again. But Internet Explorer paved the way for those. Well, there you go. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Jen Dudley-Nicholson from News Corp. Thanks for being back on the show. My pleasure. And Sarah Moran from Girl Geek Academy, always lovely to have you on Download This Show. Always lovely to be here. And with that, I shall leave you. Thanks so much for listening to the program, and I'll catch you next time on another episode of Download This Show.